Hi everyone, welcome to the first episode of the Matt White Nutrition Podcast. I'm Matt and I run Matt White Nutrition, which is my online coaching business. Throughout these podcasts, I'll be talking to a variety of people in the health and fitness industry. They'll be giving us some really practical tips for you to take away and apply to your own health and fitness. This week, we'll be speaking with Richie Kerwin, who is also a nutritionist. Richie is currently doing his PhD at Liverpool John Moores University, where he is researching sarcopenic obesity, heart health and the effects of a Mediterranean diet. He's a really decent bloke, he's very knowledgeable and he's travelled a lot. Hope you enjoy listening to this episode. If you do enjoy it, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or Google Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. Please also share it on Facebook and Instagram, especially in your Instagram story and any other social media platform that you use. It really would mean a lot to me and will help me get this great information out there. Not only that, but it will also allow the podcast to grow and help me reach more people. So let's get into this week's episode with Richie Cohen. Here he is. Can you see me? We can, yes, I can see you. How are you doing, mate? Not too bad. How are you doing, Matt? Very, very good. I was waiting for about five minutes there for you. Where were you? My apologies. Uh, for some reason, uh, my request, like I got your request to join, and yeah. then I came straight over to your page, and I was like, "Okay, why haven't I? Why hasn't it allowed me to join yet?" And then I saw the, the request pop up, so it was weird. But anyway, I'm here now. <laughs> my kid, it's the first first time I've ever done one of these Instagram lives, so. How are you feeling about it? Yeah, feel all right. Just we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so first of all, I think I have to say to everyone else that this whole idea, it, this whole thing, is Richie's idea. I completely stole it off him. Doing the Instagram lives, calling it something, and repurposing it into a into a podcast. All Richie's idea, even the post. So I'm giving all credit to him, <laughs> which is why I'm getting on him, getting him on here first i appreciate that um and i can guarantee you it wasn't my idea uh first either i had seen plenty of people doing uh instagram lives before i think tita triceps was doing them i thought it was a great idea and i said okay i'm going to get on, on onto that train and yeah it's uh it's been good <laughs> and uh, i see we, we've got um uh, dr jose antonio is watching us right now um wow he's that's not that's not a bad viewer i'll tell you, I'll tell you that <laughs> Except for the fact that he's potentially going to be trolling us all night. Um, oh, so, let's watch out for that. <laughs> you have to give some good answers then, won't you, mate? I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> so, how have you been finding lockdown and everything? So, lockdown's actually been fine for me. I'm, I'm fairly used to working from home. Um, like, I, I do go into the university and I work from the office a lot. Um, but that's more out of choice, just to get stuff done. Um, I'm still used to work from, working from home. I think the major challenge is trying to stay um, productive because uh, I can find that sitting down for hours and hours on end looking at the screen, I just, yeah, it, it saps my productivity from. Um, I'm still getting some work done, working on a couple of papers right now, and hopefully we'll get some stuff published in the next few weeks. So, yeah, really. yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it's definitely very difficult, isn't it, having that? change of routine and that just being at home the whole time everyone's fine there aren't they yes like some people handle it better um and some people just don't handle it well at all and like you, you can never tell who it's going to be 
Um, like, you know, uh, it, and it, it, it might even change over time. You know, if you speak to me again in two weeks' time, you know, I might be running off the walls or something like that. But, um, yeah, for, for the moment, things are okay with me. I know a lot of people aren't handling it well. Um, so, yeah, uh, kind of any tips that uh, people have for handling it well or any kind of productivity hacks that people have for kind of dealing with this, I think, you know, paying attention to that and kind of trying to work on how you get stuff done and how you handle the the current situation, it's a good idea. Yeah, definitely. And that's the same here as well. It's... Um... It's the same with everyone, isn't it? Like some days are good, some days are better than others, and you just everyone deals with it differently. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So the way I am going to start this is I'm going to ask some really stupid food—not stupid, but food-related questions first because I love food. I know full well that you love food, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I thought you'd like that. So the first question is one of these: If you were on a desert island. What would be what your your one meal that you would take with you that you could eat? Would, would I have to eat this every day on the desert island? <laughs> hadn't thought that far through. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you were on there for one day, oh, one, one minute. Um, oh man, God, you put me on the spot here. I think I would go with like a really nice. Like a Thai Massaman curry or something like that. Okay. I love I just I don't I love know what it is, but we'll get into your background in a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, I'm not Thai. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you don't look it. <laughs> um, and then what's one one food that you wouldn't eat? Or what's one food that you won't eat in general? I, I'll tell you straight away because I, I know this. There are very, very few foods that I don't eat. I, I'm, I'm very happy about that. The one thing I can't do is raw oysters. Raw oysters? Have you ever had one? No. Right, never don't tried it. Don't do it, okay? It's like, if you can imagine, if you can imagine a concentrated taste of seafood slash the ocean, with the consistency of snot, that's what raw oysters are. I I remember right. I, I, the first time I had them, I went to this. It was in on the west coast of Ireland, actually, with a, an ex-girlfriend, and she really wanted oysters. And I said, "Okay, I'll try one." I nearly died trying to get that one oyster down, and I will never have them again. They're horrendous. <laughs> the thing is, they do sound like it. The way you've described it is like if it's if it's just like snot. Uh, who would enjoy eating that? Exactly. And, and the funny thing is, I've had, them, I've had them cooked. Like, if you get a deep-fried oyster, they're lovely. But when they're raw, jeez, they're horrendous. Yeah. I can't say I've ever tried that either. What's your, what's your one food that you wouldn't eat, sir? So, it's be, one, the one food is liver. But that's because I had it as a kid and I had a... I absolutely hated it, and I just thought it's awful ever since. My mum and dad tried to feed it to me, or tried, they put it on my plate, made me tried to make me eat it, and I didn't like it that much. But I said, can I go eat it in my room? Bear in mind, I was probably about six years old at this point. I said, oh, can I go eat it in my room? They were like, yeah, that's fine. But what I actually did was I put it behind the radiator, didn't tell them, like six months to a year later, they were like, 
what is this? And <laughs> never let me forget it. <laughs> Boy, God. Well, whatever you guess, like when they served it to you, I bet it was like, it was cooked until there was no life left in it at all. It was probably solid as a rock, right? I can't remember. I just remember the story and just not liking it at all. And even, even to this day, I, I wouldn't eat it. I like I don't blame you, man. Like, because we we develop our taste for food as kids, you know. And like my experience with liver is similar to yours. I like my my grandmother tried to get me to eat it when I was a kid because it's you know it's healthy, it's good for you. Um, and I remember tasting it, just thinking, "What is this? The texture is horrendous. The flavor is horrendous. Like, this isn't human food." And then, like, like you know, I, I lived in Japan for a while, right? And they, they, they do this thing over there where it's like, it's called yakiniku, where they just, they have meat and they cook it right in front of you on a grill. Okay, so they do everything really quickly. But what they do over there is they cut liver into these tiny little slices, okay, like super thin. And all you do is you, you throw it onto a grill and you literally go on each side. You dip it in some soy sauce. And I had liver like that and it is amazing. And it, like, completely changed my mentality around liver. Like, I, I won't touch it the way my, my grandmother used to cook it, but if, if somebody gives it to me freshly cooked like that with the, the soy sauce on it, oh, it's actually really, really tasty. Mm. It does sound nice. And I suppose that does lead us into a bit more about your background and sort of who you are. <laughs> nice segue. Um, right, so who am I? What, do, what, what am I? I'm a, I'm a nutritionist. Um... And I, I suppose, do, do you want me to go into serious detail with this or will I just keep it a kind of an overview? Your choice. Right. Uh, I suppose just to give people a bit of context, I am a nutritionist. I got into nutrition because I was the typical, uh, and you kind of relate to this, I was the typical fat kid. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of lose weight initially. That's how I got into it, and then I just found out there's so much more to nutrition. Um, I just ended up loving all of the kind of possibilities that you can do with nutrition for improving your health, and that led me to doing a master's in human nutrition. I did that in Barcelona. I worked as a nutritionist in Spain for a few years, and then I moved to the UK, and I started, I really wanted to get more into research, so I uh, applied for a um, a PhD at Liverpool John Moores University, and that is what I'm doing now. I'm uh, doing a PhD, and I'm researching uh, something called sarcopenic obesity, which we're going to get into maybe a little bit later, um, and uh, I'm investigating heart health and how we can uh, affect those with high-protein diets and Mediterranean-style diets and exercise. So that's kind of me in a bit of a nutshell. Yeah, and that's a lot. And everything that I found, whenever when we got to know each other, I found it fascinating that you've lived in so many places. And so, how many languages are you fluent in? Then is that is it three? Um, if uh, I suppose my English would probably count as relatively fluent. Oh, that's... Like you, yeah, you, 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 you. I must say you're doing, you're doing well to follow what I'm saying right now. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate your patience. Um, English, uh, Japanese, and uh, Spanish. I speak fluently. Uh, used to speak a bit of Irish, not anymore. Used to speak a bit of French, but I haven't done that in years either. So that's gone out the window. But um, yeah, I, I like languages a lot. Yeah, and you like just living in a lot of places. It's it's crazy. Oh, it's fun, man. It's it's like yeah. I, I like to travel. 
and that's why you've also developed your um, interest in food, haven't you? And lots of. Oh, I think one of the best things about going anywhere but traveling anywhere is just eating all the food. Um, and the weird thing, this is going to sound terrible, but like sometimes when I'm going on holidays to a new country or a new city, like I plan the holiday around the places that I want to go eat. You know, I was like, oh, I've heard they've got a great whatever restaurant or, you know, I've got to try this one on there. And that's, um, yeah. yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. So um, tell us about a bit more about your research and your what you're what you're aiming to do yeah okay so i suppose the best thing to do is set a little bit of background and the background is that when we get older um it's quite normal for people to lose muscle as we age okay so i i think they say that you know on average between somebody's 20s and somebody's 80s some people can lose up to 40 percent of their muscle mass Okay, and uh, I suppose if you think about it, um, if you think of old people, like if you think of maybe, you know, your granny or your great granny or something like that, you'll often remember them as being quite small and frail. And we often notice that older people tend to get a little bit frailer as, as they get older. And that's because, one, they're losing muscle mass. And when you lose muscle mass, you also lose um, strength. And when you lose strength, it reduces your ability to do a lot of things. Like, so you, you often don't see, you know, people when they're eight, in their 80s, you know, jumping around and, you know, like uh, doing jumping jacks everywhere. And they, they, it puts people at a greater risk of a lot of other conditions, okay? So, for example, if somebody's older and weaker, if they fall or they slip, they lose their balance, they're much less likely to be able to kind of regain their balance as they're falling and they're much more likely to hit the ground. If they're more likely to hit the ground, they're much more likely to break a hip or something like that and that puts them at a kind of an increased risk of death in the next year as well um but more so than that it reduces people's quality of life you know people can't go and do the groceries for themselves uh, as easily if they if their muscle isn't strong enough they can't uh, do the gardening and then we also know that there are a lot of associated risks with things like there there's an increased risk of heart disease when people have low muscle mass there's an increased risk of diabetes an increased risk of like cognitive decline, so you know people's ability to think. Um, there's uh, increased risk in uh, depression as well. Um, so there's a huge, and like, that's just kind of scratching the surface. You know, we, we've associated low muscle mass with a huge amount of different conditions. And then on the opposite side, so that's that's sarcopenia, that's that's muscle loss. And then on the opposite side of the equation, we have obesity and like everybody knows what that is it's you know an excess accumulation of fat that results in um you know negative health consequences and what we know is that if if you've got that combination of sarcopenia and obesity you've got this incredibly originally named condition called sarcopenic obesity um but which basically means somebody's got low muscle mass and high fat mass the thing with that is is if you look at somebody who has or potentially has sarcopenic obesity they may look perfectly normal you know um underneath their clothes i, I mean like with their clothes on they, they may look perfectly normal they may not look particularly overweight they may have a healthy body weight, you know or a healthy bmi um but they can be at a hugely increased risk of a lot of different conditions like the ones that i just mentioned and that's because um the way we store body fat also affects our health. So we know that if if you store a lot of body fat around your organs, we call that visceral fat, or if you store a lot of uh, body fat within organs, you know, so that's like a, a topically stored fat, that has massive effects on 
your your metabolic health, so your heart health, your risk of diabetes, your risk of um, uh, fatty liver disease, and all of these things together are bad news basically for for your health. So that's an issue that's becoming more and more prevalent these days because we, we live in a society where it's super easy to be uh, sedentary, you know, lazy, you know, people, lazy is a bad way of putting it, but people aren't as active as they used to be. If you're not as active, you're going to lose muscle. You're not going to hold on to it. And then we've got poor diet choices as well. So people uh, may not eat enough protein. People are eating a lot of uh, excess sugars and a lot of excess saturated fat, and that can kind of contribute to the problem. So what we we know is that the problem exists and we're trying to find ways to deal with that. So my specific research is looking at people in something called cardiac rehab. And cardiac rehab, if, if somebody has a heart attack in the UK, they go to cardiac rehab. And basically it's an exercise program for people to, to try and get them to uh, improve their heart health by exercising. There's, there's some guidelines around diet as well, but they're not particularly strict on the diet. But what we want to do is we want to work with these people in cardiac rehab. And we want to, well, uh, and I, can, I can go into more detail on these uh, as we go along, but what we want to do is we want to get them doing some resistance exercise, so lifting weights, and that's to hold on to their muscle and maybe build a bit more muscle. And we also want to get them on a higher protein diet because we know that higher protein diets are quite useful for uh, increasing um, muscle protein synthesis and increasing muscle mass in people as well. But we don't want to just stop at a high-protein diet and resist exercise, just like you know any other bodybuilder. We also want to look at the, the metabolic side of things, and that's why we want to use a Mediterranean-style diet as well. So a Mediterranean-style diet, again, we can get into this, but it's been shown to have a huge amount of benefits when it comes to things like um, non-alcoholic fatty liver, cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, cognitive function. So we want to combine all of these together into a protocol that will basically uh, reduce the risk of having another heart condition in these people who are already at risk and who have uh, you know, high levels of body fat and low levels of muscle, muscle mass. So that's kind of the an overview of, of my research. Sorry if I, I rambled a bit. <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's good. So you're, you're getting these people that are in cardiac rehab and you're doing an intervention which is giving them the Mediterranean diet versus what's what's the sort of control diet? Is there one? So the control diet is going to be standard care in cardiac rehab. And like I said, standard care in, in cardiac rehab, they don't do a lot of work on diet. So they give people so standard cardiac rehab, you get usually get two lectures about food. One is on weight management, so how to lose a little bit of weight, because often people oftentimes people in cardiac rehab are overweight. Um, and then the other is um, on uh, healthy eating. And that's an hour's lecture or, you know, a 45-minute talk about, you know, uh, reducing saturated fat, um, eating more fruit and vegetables, uh, things like that. Um, so they don't get a huge amount of care. So we want to really focus on the diet side of things, and we want to really encourage them with the diet. So, you know, we're going to give them um, loads and loads of recipe guides. We're going to help tailor the nutritional guidelines that we give them to their own diet. We're going to kind of work with people individually to show them, okay, you can change this, this, and this in your diet. And then we're going to follow up with people regularly as well to make sure that they're actually sticking to the diet. So, you know, even if just checking in with somebody once a week can have a huge benefit on their motivation. Like, you know this as a, as a coach, man. Yeah, and, and just the accountability of doing it as well, because you don't want to 
put all this effort into putting the study together and then people just not do it. Absolutely. You might, you might have had that already, but I'm sure that would be really annoying. <laughs> this is like a major issue with most dietary interventions. Most dietary interventions, you know, they may work for a short amount of time, but if you give them long enough, the people's adherence to the diet kind of falls off. People just don't have that ability to stick with it. So the whole idea is that we stay in contact with people as much as possible. We, we ask them how they're doing. We get them to tell them if, tell us if they're having any problems. We ask them to tell us what they need, what kind of support they need, and we give them that support to make sure they're sticking with it. Um, and there's one thing to, kind of, to, to mention about this. That kind of an approach that we're talking about here it's not the kind of scientific experiment that you would do if you wanted to say, okay, we want to see what effect X, Y, or Z has on, you know, whatever condition we're looking at, because it, it doesn't tell us anything. It's called, in, in the scientific principle, it's called um, a pragmatic approach. So it basically means doing whatever you can to have the best or the most uh, obvious effect on health. And we really, really want to do that. We want to see what can we, we do in this intervention to make sure people get healthy. And that's why we're doing diet and exercise and we're doing the behavior change and all of these things together. Mm. Yeah, so you're really sort of covering all aspects. We're trying to. Um, you, you can never cover everything. Um, so, yeah, we're, we, we've had a, a lot of time to kind of develop the protocol and, you know, you, you know, similar to yourself, man, like, you know, you've seen a lot of research papers, you've seen a lot of studies that you've looked at and you said, oh, I wish they'd done this differently, you know, and that's what we're kind of trying to do with this. We're trying to do everything that we can do within reason, you know, within our budget as well, um, to, to get people to stick to the, the program. And hopefully, um, once we do get rolling, once this whole corona thing blows over, um, hopefully we'll be able to have some good effects with it. Mm. Uh, that's uh, it sounds really interesting just just out of interest what sort of behavior change are you including is is that the accountability and the the constant check-ins so that that's one aspect of it another aspect is we're going to be using motivational interviewing at the start um and what that means is so every time that we get somebody coming through we're going to have a look at their diet with them together so obviously people are going to do food diaries for us we're going to look at their diet and we're going to ask people questions so with motivational interviewing a lot of it is based around questions and getting the the individual the person who's doing the or who's going to be doing the the diet to feedback and try and find the solutions that they need themselves so we'll look at the diet and we'll have our guidelines that we need people to follow we say and we'll, we'll go through the diet book and we, their, their diet uh, diary and we'll say okay let's having a look at your food and what you're eating what do you think you could change right now that would help you get closer to these guidelines and the whole point of that is to get people thinking themselves because if people start thinking themselves well, people are always going to come up with better solutions within their own lifestyle than you can come up yourself as, as a person on the outside, like as a practitioner. So, you know, you might say to somebody, okay, looking at this, um, your protein for breakfast is really, really low. These are some of the options that we have for including protein. What do you think is a, is a good option for you to get this into your diet? And they might just come at me and say, okay, well, um, Oh, yeah, I suppose I could have a, a yogurt for breakfast. That, that you know, I, I like yogurts. So I could have that instead of saying to them, "Okay, for breakfast, I want you to eat uh, an omelet with five eggs." Um, and then they go, "Oh, but I, I don't really like eggs that much." You know, yeah. um, you have to find solutions that they like. 
And it's great when that person can come up with the solution themselves because they feel involved in the process and they feel like um, when they're involved in the process, they're more likely to stick to it. So that's some of the, the aspects of being here. That's, that's exactly what I was about to say is that I'm sure, as you as you can imagine, that it's when, the, when people come up with the idea themselves, they're, one, more likely to stick to it, and two, they feel happier that they're not getting told what to do. Exactly. And it's kind of, it's, it's a very... Um, client-centered um, approach isn't it so it's, it's all about getting them to come up with what they want to do like you say rather rather than telling them straight up. yeah exactly and, and it's it sounds like a very very simple approach to getting people to change their behavior but it's a very very effective approach as well and like just for anybody who's interested in nutrition if, if you have the opportunity of reading up on stuff, uh, on motivational interviewing, it's it's definitely worth uh, a read. There's some great books out there by an author called Walnick. So definitely. Yeah, one, 100%. It's definitely something that I think it's also been quite, in recent years, I'd say, has come into light. Because if I think in the past, it, it was probably quite different, whereas now it's I think people are starting to see the value in it. Absolutely. I, I think in the past, when it came to diets, um, especially in the, yeah, actually in most senses, it was more like give the person a piece of paper with, you know, a list of foods that they need to eat or a list of meals and send them on their merry way and, you know, hope for the best. And we know that that's just not effective, that there are better ways of doing it. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that, that kind of approach is going to be more successful, more, more used in the future. Definitely. So... In terms of the actual Mediterranean diet, I've just got a quick question. Yeah. What, maybe for some people that aren't too familiar with it, so what? how would you describe a Mediterranean diet? Best describe it. What, okay. what some types of foods and everything? So the, the reason I'm asking is because I want to know some kind of like non-meat versions because I know there's a lot more people out there these days that are trying to eat a bit less meat. Absolutely. So I suppose the first thing to say is that, I, so I don't like using the term Mediterranean diet myself, but I use it because it's, it's widely accepted and kind of widely understood. When I, I think the most important thing about a Mediterranean diet is that it's not a specific diet. It's what we call a, a dietary pattern. Okay, and that means that it has some components that are quite similar, but can be changed quite readily as well. So within the, co the context of like a, a Mediterranean dietary pattern, we've got um, a high intake of fruit and vegetables. So that's one. Okay. Um, a high intake of whole grains and legumes. Uh, so things like beans, peas, uh, lentils. We've got lower intakes of red meat, um, moderate intakes of white meat, uh, like chicken, and we've got moderate intakes of fish and shellfish. Um, and then one of the main components that a lot of people talk about when it comes to the Mediterranean diet is the inclusion of a lot of extra virgin olive oil. And you know, there's a lot of there's you know a lot of research about why the extra virgin olive oil is, is particularly good. Um, and then on top of that, there's also um, the inclusion of a little bit of uh, wine as well. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the, the the protein aspect of that that you were talking about, like so, obviously people are trying to reduce their amount their intake of meat, 
Um, if you do, if you're one of those people who doesn't consider fish and meat, you've got the the option of fish. Um, there's also the intake of legumes, which are another protein source as well. Um, you can still have eggs, uh, you know, um, and then there's also uh, I think dairy is a fantastic source of protein. Um, non-meat protein, anyway, um, yeah. really high in uh, very, very high-quality um, protein, calcium, a lot of other nutrients as well, like iodine, phosphorus. So you can have that as well. It is very, very possible to, to do the Mediterranean diet um, without having any red meat at all um, if, if somebody wants to do that. Yeah. The, the thing is that that surprises, not surprises me, but I, I find funny is that a lot of the things that you have just mentioned, maybe not the, the more olive oil and the wine and everything, a lot of people would just class that as a general healthy, balanced diet, right? Eating, eating health, healthy. That's what people would suggest. Exactly. And, and see, this is why I don't like using the term Mediterranean diet specifically, um, because I think when you mention a specific diet, it almost limits you to what you can do. You know, and and I really, really don't want to limit anybody. So what we're we're saying actually in our own research is in our program, we're not calling it a Mediterranean diet. We're calling it a heart healthy diet for people. Um, but just for the purpose of research, when we publish, we're going to use Mediterranean diet. Um, but you're right. Like if you look at um, there's another diet called Dash, which is the uh, diet against. Um, uh, something in hypertension uh, using the US, which again, very, very similar. Um, there's the Prudence diet, which is another diet commonly mentioned in scientific literature. Again, super similar. High fruit and veg intake, whole grains, legumes, uh, low in saturated fat. Um, all of these things together. It's And this is why I said it's important to think about it as a dietary pattern and not as a specific diet. Because if you say it's a dietary pattern, you can literally do anything you want. You just want to make some you know, meet some specific guidelines and you're good. You don't need to feel like you have to eliminate anything entirely. You don't feel like you have to, you know, buy a load of special ingredients. Um, and actually, one of the big things we're doing is we're trying to adapt uh, a Northwest English diet to the Mediterranean style. And it's surprisingly easy. So we've got recipe guides and we've got things like, have you ever heard of a dish called Scouse, by any chance? Scouse? Yeah, okay, right, okay. Um, <laughs> here's an Irish man telling them about an English dish. Um, so in Liverpool, there's a famous dish called Scouse, and mm -hmm. it's basically a beef stew, okay? And we've just made a modified version of that. Um, we just added some more vegetables. We're using uh, low-fat you know, low cuts of beef, um, and we're serving it with, you know, it's traditionally served with red cabbage, serving with that. We just done it in a Mediterranean style. We cooked it in olive oil. You know, um, super simple changes, but it's still, you know, scouse is still an, an English dish or a, a liver pudding dish, um, just with a, a Mediterranean twist. Mm. So yeah, by by actually calling it, not calling it the the name of a Mediterranean diet, it makes it a bit more not flexible, but it, yeah, a bit more acceptable. Acceptable, yeah, that's what I was looking for. But it, it really does, it sounds like it could be really, really good. And it's, it's inter it'll be interesting to see how you get on with it um, and what, what your findings are. But have you found anything sort of like, yeah, is it, is it a bit too early to come out of recommendations? I mean, how far? Yeah. Well, like, you? So as regards our own research, uh, we, we don't have anything done yet. So we designed our study, we applied for ethical improvements, 
and we received ethical improvements to actually do the study literally a, a couple of weeks before corona hit which meant that we couldn't start recruiting for our study so that study is on hold until corona is is done and dusted because obviously we're working with a cardiac population it's an at-risk population we can't do that um so we can't say anything from our own research but we do have a lot of other research that we can rely on and we can kind of make some uh, guidelines or make some generalizations based on that so for example mediterranean diets we know that from a heart health perspective it is one of the healthiest diets that people can follow um it's it results in a much lower risk of having a heart attack if you've never had a heart attack and if you have had a heart attack it also reduces your risk of having another we know that um we also know that it's really good for reducing incidence of stroke reducing incidence of diabetes um reducing visceral fat so that fat i mentioned about around your organs it's really good at reducing that as well um and then we know that from a if we go back to the, the whole muscle building side of things we know that um people eating a higher amount of protein can uh build more muscle and with older people it's really important that they eat a, a bit more protein than younger people because so with older people there's a, a condition well it's not a condition it's just a phenomenon called uh, anabolic resistance okay it's a, and basically what it means is that if you and i do um some exercise like we go to the gym um, and we lift some weights we get what's called a, an anabolic response we we get a, a response that causes us to build more muscle okay and likewise if you and i eat you know a small amount of protein so let's say 20 grams of protein we also stimulate the growth of muscle very very easily okay but as you get older that response isn't so good that's why it's, we say our body is resistant to the anabolic response of exercise and uh diet so we actually need to ex- as we get older we need to exercise a little bit more intensely and we also need to ex- eat to eat a higher dose of protein to get the same anabolic response and as people get older like you know over you know into their 60s and 70s that can be as much as you know if we talk in grams 0.4 grams per kilogram of body weight which is actually uh, sorry 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight which is a decent dose of protein so like you know for your average adults you're talking maybe 40 grams of protein of high quality protein a meal and that's so, sort of double what the average person would get in probably only that evening at lunch really absolutely and especially when you think about like older people especially they tend to have very very low but people in general but older people too have very very low protein breakfasts so like we often say that breakfast is one of those meals that we really need to to hit hard with protein because it gets a really really good dose of protein in quite easily and it helps people to stimulate that muscle growth that they need to maintain muscle as they age to keep them healthy to keep them strong yeah that's there yeah some really good recommendations and, and the thing is it's it is going to be really interesting because like i said a lot of a lot of people at the moment don't do that uh, especially a lot of elderly people they because it's not how they were really right i mean i can't speak for them but that's that's my my thoughts on it no no you you're spot on um uh, if if you look at a lot of uh, epidemiological studies right now and and studies that are looking at food intake in older adults you'll see that breakfast tends to be like it's usually the, the lowest protein meal of the day and the reason i say that is because you'll often hear of an older person they wake up in the morning and all they'll have is you know a slice of toast and a cup of tea or something like that and that's all they need 
or maybe some fruit. Um, and then dinner tends to be, you know, the, the, the more high-protein meal. But oftentimes, the, and if you think of it from an economic perspective, older people don't have a huge lot, a amount of money. You know, oftentimes they're surviving on a pension. They can't afford to buy a lot of meat. They can't uh, afford to buy um, uh, a lot of eggs and things like that. So they often, their protein intake goes down, unfortunately. So we're trying to find ways to make it easier for them to get that protein in. So dairy can be quite effective because it can be cheaper to get protein from dairy, like uh, from whole dairy sources. Uh, yogurts, um, they don't necessarily need to get it from meat or, or from fish, although we do encourage it when they can. Um, so yeah, just getting that extra protein in can have a fairly decent effect on helping people improve their muscle mass as long as they're exercising. Because obviously I, I'm a nutritionist, I focus a lot on, on nutrition and the benefits, but I have to say um, that if somebody's not exercising, if they're not giving their body the initial stimulus they need to grow muscles, it's not going to be easy to do so, if not impossible. You, you know, it's like, you, you can say, you can say to somebody, um, okay, uh, somebody might ask, how do I grow muscle? You say, oh, you need to eat a lot of protein. But if you eat a load of pro drink a lot of protein shakes and eat a lot of protein bars, you're not going to grow muscle unless you go to the gym as well and give yourself a stimulus. Yeah. Exactly. I think when somebody's older, they need some sort of stimulus. They need to exercise to, to stimulate their muscles to grow, and then they can feed those muscles to grow with protein. Mm. So it's, it's both things that matter, isn't it? It's it's getting the stimulus and then um, the nutrition and eating after it to, to actually recover your muscles. Absolutely. And, and this is why I said it's, it's a pragmatic approach. You know, we're trying to cover as many of our bases as we can. So that's why we've got the exercise, we've got the high protein, we've got the Mediterranean diet. Yeah. So I think we have covered a lot of things and I am a bit um, conscious of your time. I did say it would be 20 minutes and I'm I think we've been 40, so double what I thought. <laughs> um, just really quickly, um, obviously around your topic and what you're, what you're studying and what you're doing, what would be at the moment your three tips for elderly people to either, either get more protein in or the benefits of that? Okay, I'm not going to just limit it to protein. I'll, I'll give three tips for, for older adults, I would say. Stay active. Okay, no matter what it is, stay active. Go go outside, go for walks, do gardening, um, do your chores, carry your groceries home, walk up flights of stairs, go out and socialize with friends, go dancing, do whatever you can do to stay active. That is one of the most important things anybody can do to look after their health as they get older. Um, get protein in at breakfast, okay? Um, because like I said, breakfast tends to be a very low protein meal. Get a nice dose of protein. If you want to get it from dairy, some Greek yogurt, some uh, some quark. Um, if you want, if you want to give your granny some protein shakes, give it to her, tell her to take it at breakfast, whatever you want. But get protein in at breakfast because it is a really, really, um, it's a piece of low hanging fruit, a target that people can easily hit to improve their diet quality. And then besides that, um, I would say eat uh, a very, very, you know, eat plenty of fruit and vegetables. Um, I think that's one of the best ways people, especially in the UK, can improve their diet quality is just by eating more fruit and vegetables, getting some fruit in at lunch, uh, sorry, at breakfast, and then making sure that you've got a couple of cups of, of vegetables um, with your two other main meals for lunch and dinner. Those would yeah. be my thoughts. Hashtag health. Hashtag health. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, there's some, there's some really great um, 
really great points. So apart from that, I think I think we will end it there. Um, so as you do at the end of everything, where can everyone find more about you? Sure, I'm most active on Instagram, so you can find me at B underscore more underscore nutrition. Um, I've also got a Facebook page, which is the same, B more nutrition, and I have a blog um, and a website, which is www.bemorenutrition.com. Um, and yeah, that, like, if anybody ever wants to shoot me a message or an email or anything like that, I'm always happy to talk um, and always happy to talk on, you know, answer questions on on Instagram as well. And I would say to anyone watching this or listening to this after, if if you do want to learn a bit more about nutrition and the real science side behind it, Richie is the man to go to. And you and you also do live Q and A's yourself and have turned that don't you, you into into a podcast. Yeah, yeah, so I've been doing podcasts now for a little over six months, and uh, yeah, really love it. Um, got a, a good few guests over there at the moment, so I'm trying to trying to build up the numbers. I can't believe some of the big names you've got on yours, honestly. He who dares wins, match. Like you know, all you got to do is ask. That's the that's the hardest thing. What's the worst thing? Say? No, you know. Motivational quotes to end it. <laughs> Right, so yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on, mate. It's been really good talking to you, and we'll catch up soon. Absolutely, thanks very much for having me. This one, cheers, mate. Maybe. So that's it for this week's episode of the Matt White Nutrition Podcast. I really would appreciate it if you would leave a rating or a review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or whichever podcast app that you use. It really would be a massive help if you could share this episode with anyone that is interested in nutrition, health, fitness or anyone that has just started their own journey and is trying to get a little bit healthier. Please share it on Facebook, Instagram and any other social media platforms as it will just help the podcast grow and it will allow me to reach more people. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next one.